collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Collective Power. Thank you for tuning in for another episode. And our guest this morning is Supreme Dow. Supreme, good morning. Good morning. How are you, Dr. Rita? I'm good. It's good to be with you today. And uh, I'm really excited because we've our paths have been crossing a few times in the past couple of months. And it's really good to have you on the show today. So you're running for office at the state level. And most people know you as the founder of the Black Writers Museum. Like, tell us a little bit of story that has you share kind of how you're committed to Germantown and, you know, your passion about communities and and community work. Um, And then let us know a little bit why you decided to run for office. I'll just put that in one question so you can just ride with it. I was born and, and raised in Germantown. And I was born in a family with a father and a mother who were very active in the community of my mother and father, they played a really, really complimentary role in raising their children. My mother was very, very um, adamant about being involved in activities in the community and about bringing resources to our community. And my father was very, very um, forceful, I'll say, and embraced the academic process, particularly reading and writing and speaking standard English. Uh, I came up in an era during the 60s and, and the 70s. Um, where there was a other cultural revolution in communities across America. Of course, the civil rights movement was taking place. And it was also a movement that's called the Black Arts Movement, where a lot of artists penned powerful and great literary compositions uh, from James Baldwin to Langston Hughes, just so many African-American writers and literary composers. They had an opportunity to, Gwendolyn Brooks, had an opportunity to write down their stories. So while the civil rights movement was happening, we had folks who were penning, penning the actual activity that was taking place. So while people were protesting and marching on Washington, you you had folks who were writing songs about it. James Brown, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Uh, You had Parliament Funkadelic and, and Earth, Wind and Fire, Keep Your Head to the Sky. So they were in Stevie Wonder's Songs in a Kid Life. So while there were a lot of social activism that was going on during this period of time in America, uh, we had folks that were writing these stories down. And so a lot of these books were read in our in my home and a lot of these songs were played on the record player in our home. And so when we got up every Saturday morning to take part in the chores for the day, you know, my mother would put on one of those albums. And we had the opportunity to really just listen to songs that were about change and songs that were about uh, building inner your head high because we were people that were worthy of this. And so 
while that was going on, I really always enjoyed the aesthetic and the culture of blackness, of being an, an African in America, because we had a, a way that we walked, a way that we spoke, a way of interaction that actually the world emulated and, and the world looked to. So as I, you know, was a person of a family that was strict the understanding of culture and understanding the value of education and standard English, I would come in the house with a little stroll and a bop and I would come in the house and saying some really, really hip slang. And my father would say, what's wrong with you, boy? First of all, straighten up your walk. <laughs> and secondly, speak proper English, mm-hmm. speak proper English. And not that he was denying our culture. What he was making sure was that we spoke that I could speak the language of trade in the world, which was English at the time and still is the language of trade. And also understood how the the general, how America and how the world ran and how to be successful in this country. So I was raised in a household that not only embraced our culture, but also taught us how to, um, I guess some would call it code switch. And so how we can embrace our culture while understanding the value of standard English. So reading these books in our home and then because my mother and father were so active in community work, I got the opportunity to be raised around a lot of powerful people that were really, really active in the black empowerment process, not only in Philadelphia, but the country. So I was raised around the Cecil B. Moores and the David P. Richardsons. My mother was David P. Richardson, who was a state representative from Germantown. His move to unseat an incumbent, a long-term incumbent, Joe Rocks, was a move and a catalyst in the black political empowerment movement in Philadelphia. So she was his first campaign manager. So I got an opportunity to really sit with Dave as an older brother uh, in my home. And I got to watch my father write some of his speeches. So I learned to write speeches at an early age. So all of that led me to an activism in our community. And so in 2007, I had the idea of starting the Black Writers Museum from my own collection of books that I had in my home. And some of the books that my older brothers and sisters left in our home when they uh, moved on in life and um, and some of the books that I collected. And so in 2010, we opened up the Black Writers Museum, which is the only institution of its kind that provides um, exhibits of of classic and contemporary Black literature. And we use that Black literature to teach literary skills to young folks and to celebrate the power of Black writing. I love what you're sharing because uh, having been kind of I, I keep thinking raised in a black studies program like it's just beautiful to watch how you weave the cultural and the activism together because sometimes mm-hmm. some folk have separated them and I think a lot in how African-American studies and African-American histories gets taught sometimes the literature and the activist like bent and strength of the literature doesn't get taught as much as it could but like I'm really proud and thrilled to see how you're emphasizing that art reflects life like academics like do a lot of bunch of interpretation but common folk know the music is speaking to real life right yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) well coming up in a household where a lot of the the meetings that fuel the movement in philadelphia and across the country we really had not only scholars but activists that were coming to our home a lot of these meetings were taking place in our kitchen And so not only were we talking about how we're going to move David P. Richardson into a seat as a state rep, you know, we had folks like Father Paul Washington from the Church of the Advocate at 18th and Diamond, which is a national historic landmark as far Mm -hmm. as I'm concerned. He was a really, really good friend of the family, he and Miss Christine Washington. So when these people came through the home, 
and to have the meetings to strategize on what particular um, activity were to take place, what social action we were going to take. As part of our, our strategy and process was the reading and discussion of books of France Fanon, Wretched of the Earth, so, so many other books. And I was nine and 10 and 11 years old at the time. So my elder brothers and sisters and mother and father were reading these books uh, written by black scholars. I was 10 and 11 years old reading the same books. So mm. I, I might've been upstairs, you know, and I would sit on the top of the steps and listen to the meetings. Or sometimes we would be involved in the meetings. And surely whenever we would do a protest or some type of act, social activism, my mother would take us. I have five brothers and sisters two other brothers and three sisters, and surely she would take us with them. So we were on the front lines when we were protesting uh, on, in any given situation in Philadelphia and across the country. So it was a good time coming up in my household. It was a really, really good time. It was a lot of um, activity going on in our home. But one thing, we had a really good way of interacting and, and sharing stories that created a culture of family with not just our solar or our individual family, my mother and father and five brothers and sisters, but also with family with community members. And hence the term, you know, we would call one another brother and sister, and we still do to this day. I called Dave Richardson's mother, uh, God rest her soul, who just passed away just last month. I called her mom. And so, and many folks from the community, because my mother was an elder, called my mother and father, mom and pop because that's how they treated the community. They were mentors to many. And so I, I grew up with, with the same attitude of how we were responsible for what goes on into our communities. And if resources weren't in our community or we, and we needed resources, then it was something that we had to do. It was our responsibility and duty to make sure that we got the adequate resources. Wonderful. So what had you decide to get into politics? I will say I ran for about 15, 20 years ago, I ran for office. And the reason why I had any interest at all in running for office was coming up in this household and being active in our community all of my life, and not due to my actions, but because of my parents, uh, particularly my mother. And um, we recognized that in order to, to bring resources, goods, and services to our communities, we had to become involved in politics, in electoral politics, because Economics and politics work hand in hand in America. One hand washes the other in our communities. And so that saying goes with politics and economics. So in order to understand how economics flow to a particular community, we have to understand or control the politics of that. And uh, we had the great up upset Joe Rocks in the 201st Legislative District. Uh, he served for about, I think about 25 years before he um, passed away in 1995, right before the Million Man March. I actually was with him the night that he passed away. He dropped me off at home and he was on his way home. I think he made one other stop. And uh, I got the call the next morning at 6.30 in the morning that Brother David passed away. And I said, no, Brother Dave didn't pass away because I was just with him. And they were like, no, he, he passed away right after that. I took a, a little time off between the late 70s and the mid 80s. I took a little time off and I was a, a practicing hoodlum during my life. And when I was doing high school, you know, I really turned to the, uh, the streets and um, didn't do really well at that. 
But because I had a really firm foundation in, in academics and a firm foundation of understanding the value of community, I was able to turn my life back around. And I remember in 1990, I walked back into Dave's office and said, Dave, we never really lost contact. But I spent a lot of time hanging on corners back in the um, late 70s, early 80s, hanging on corners, drinking wine, just being a menace to society. And I didn't do really well at that. My spirit never got comfortable with that. Though I have a testimony about that and how I was able to recover from that and, and how that experience helped me to turn my life around. And so around 1990, 1991, I went back into Dave's office and said, Dave, you know, I want to get back involved. Uh, I want to run for office and I want to run for state senate. I said, some large seat. I remember Dave said, soldier, let's see, hold on for a second and let's see if you can become a committee person. And at the time I lived in Mount Airy on Upsell Street, on West Upsell. And that was the 22nd Ward. And I became the uh, 22nd Ward committee person in the 9th Division. And um, at that point, the Central Committee, which was committee, major committee that would run Dave electoral politics and would form our positions, our community positions on policy, they decided to have me roll with Dave so he can groom me to run for office. And so that was the process. And that's how I got interested because I understood the impacts and um, of electoral politics on the flow of resources into communities. Because if you make predatory policies, then those policies will adversely impact communities. History says that what most often happens in urban communities and black communities across this country, that when you have communities that are spots of, in, of a lot of black activism, the city and state and the federal government tends to pull the resources from that community. They divest from that particular community. And so services become scarce. And then people start to say, see, when black people move into a neighborhood, they just run the neighborhood down, not mm -hmm. understanding the political impact of divesting of services and divesting of goods and divesting of representation in particular communities. So growing up, understanding that dynamic, I looked at running for office as a way of being able to bring more resources and to provide some adequate leadership in our communities. So I worked with Dave for years, then he passed away and I continued to work in community work. Um, as an adult, I, I um, went back into my grade school, John B. Kelly School, uh, elementary school on Pulaski Avenue in Southwest Germantown and started to volunteer and helping students in reading, writing, and math. They gave me a job there, and I called that a um, volunteer payment. I remember it was like for $8 an hour uh, because it, they were like, Mr. Dow, you're here every day. Your miles will get paid for it. So I remember paying me $8 an hour. Just come to think of it, and this was in the 90s, and I think $8 an hour today is still more than a minimum wage today, which is totally unacceptable and ridiculous. Absolutely. So no understanding the connection and the dynamics of electoral politics and economics and bringing resources to our community, I thought the best way to shepherd in and to change, help transform our community was to run for office. So I ran in early um, 2000. I didn't win. I continued to stay active in our community in 2007 is when I got the idea to open the museum. I started to study and do the research. 
my own life sentence and my own collections, I opened the doors of the Black Writers Museum in 2010. And here we are now, um, incumbent state representative Rosita Youngblood, she is retiring. That's the district in which I live. I've lived here for over 30 years, but I've lived in Northwest Philadelphia all my life. And so I, I kept getting a lot of calls. I was sitting in the Black Writers Museum um, doing really well. Schools were visiting, uh, universities were coming and doing research in our archives. And folks, start, they started giving me a call and talking about the opportunity that we had to really transform our community. Because we think this community, uh, the 198th district has been underserved, severely underserved for the last 35 years. So we're looking for some accountable, trusting leadership. And folks encouraged me to run. And once they convinced me that we could also continue to make sure that the Black Writers Museum had a place in the museum market space in Philadelphia, and that we could actually do more to help the arts and cultural industry thrive, I decided to run. Thank you for like giving us really a sense of um, where you are and how committed you've been to Germantown and to activism and communities in general, right? My question is like coming to systems, right? So what is the understanding that you have? You started talking about this a little bit when you were saying when social activism rises in a community, the government systems start divesting. So you started touching upon like the dynamics of systems, right? So based on, it's like our theme this month is housing. And I know you're really passionate about education, can you speak a little bit to how education and housing systems like either get in the way or can either foster or get in the way of thriving communities? When we talk about systems, first of all, I like to a- approach community work and our predicament in urban communities and poor communities and underserved communities from a systems approach of how systems act how they act upon and respond to conditions in particular urban and historically marginalized communities. A systems approach is, means that I, I look at it from a critical standpoint. If a community is thriving, how do we develop? If, if we go into our communities and say, okay, is this community thriving? If it is, then what is working in this community? And what can we enhance or what, what strategies and methodologies can we use to multiply this and take to other communities to help those communities thrive. And if these communities aren't thriving, then what is it that is missing? In addition to what strengths are in this community that we can build upon to help make this community strive. And so personally, my view is that there's systems that work either for or against particular institutions and communities. They're all integrated. So there's an integration of systems and services that help to make thriving communities and home ownership and, and housing is part of that. Public education is part of that. Um, banks and lending practices, it's part of that. Social conditions, you know, recreation centers. There's so many government, public and private entities that exist within communities. These are the entities that are part of a systemic process that can help determine whether communities thrive, or just survive. Critically looking at our community, Germantown in particular, you know, it's a community that is one of the most diverse communities in the nation. The housing stock is just so varied. You know, you can go from one block with row houses 
to the next block with single houses, single homes. What we have is a, in a difference in political view. It's coexisted, not necessarily coexisted in a positive way, but we've all had to live together for decades. And my view is if we find a way to bring all of these resources together, if we can, um, I think every family deserves the right to send their child to a neighborhood school that is more than adequate and is more than sufficient, but that is um, achieves and teaches at a high level. Every family. We shouldn't have to negotiate and call a cousin that lives in Sheltonham Township so we can make up a story and say our child lives in Sheltonham just so they can go to a school in a better school district. We should be proud to send our school down the block. I mean, send our child down the block to our neighborhood school. That is not happening. And so when you raise up a group of children that are undereducated in neighborhoods that are impoverished due to systemic racism, what happens is you, you find that these children either do one of two things. Either they're raised undereducated and don't understand the dynamic of systems and how systems impact their community. They don't um, understand the, the value or haven't been taught how to think critically. One of the things that I was really blessed with was a father used to say, I used to just walk past my dad and he would stop me and say, boy, think, just think. And I'm like, dad, I'm just going to the refrigerator. You're making this really deep. He's like, no, you're walking around here and you're not thinking. Nothing's on your mind. So I, I used to have consistently and constantly think and process things and do some deductive reasoning. And so these are things that I've gotten at home, but we also should get this in our schools. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes our, our schools teach to the test because they're so uh, test oriented. So our children grow up in communities that they don't understand the connection between systems and the impact it has on our community. Or they say, when I grow up and I get a job and I make some money, I'm going to move out my neighborhood. That's right. So those are one of the two things they do. So what do you think are the biggest misperceptions people have around systems and how they impact communities? I don't even think it's a misperception. I think it's a misunderstanding. I don't think they understand the impact that systems have on our communities. Because of the propaganda that's put out there that, you know what, it's, this is you doing this to your community. For instance, when you have a group of people, 80% of the population that don't vote, and we only get 20% voter participation, to me, that doesn't say 80% of the people don't care about their community. That says 80% of the people don't trust the electoral process. So to me, that 80%, that is a loud, silent majority that says this electoral process doesn't work for us. So it, more than a misperception, it's a misunderstanding. And I think people don't grasp. And because of poverty, because of undereducation, because of detrimental social indicators in our communities, such as the food deserts and the the poor quality of food in, in our supermarkets or in our stores in our neighborhood. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood where in our, our corner store actually had a butcher, <laughs> had someone who was cutting meat in the store. <laughs> These don't exist. You have major monopoly chains across this country. And we all know that a monopolies are, are not supposed to exist in this form of democratic capitalism, because what it does is it corners the market. There is no competition. And What's supposed to make capitalism successful is the ability to compete. 
We claim it to be pure capitalism, but there's actually an oligarchy and a number of monopolies that are growing, right? Make it impossible to have the type of competition that we claim thrives. And that's systemically implemented, right? Like the fact that monopolies have been fostered over the years, right? If I think about, there was like one independent pharmacy, or there are a couple, there's still a couple around our neighborhoods, but you know, the fact that a Rite Aid and a CVS eat up all the market, like that is systemically helped, right? Supported. Yes. Right. And yes. the same happens for other types of commerce yeah. as well. I grew up with a pharmacy on, I grew up on, uh, in the sixties on Maneva street, right around the corner from my home now in the middle of the 198th legislative district, the corner was a pharmacy and you could go in and you could get your, your medicines. It had a, a ice cream parlor where you can get a soda pop with ice cream in it (laughs) but this was on our corner there are very few and far between in philadelphia in the united states of america because the rite aids and the cbs's have put them out of business and Dwayne reed i think it is in new york and that region so that is a misconception so i think a lot of folk and not just minorities black and brown folk i'm talking about people in general white folk as well that think that this capitalism the way that we utilize capitalism, and this is by no means a, uh, an endorsement of capitalism. I'm just saying the capitalism that we're supposed to work under, we're not, number one, or, or work with or utilize as a form of our economic base. And that folks have a misperception that this capitalism is an open and free market. It's not, because that's not how it functions. So what people say and what people do are two different things. My parents used to always say to me, you can listen to what people say, but more importantly, watch what they do. That's right. So I'm just curious, like, where do you see people having the collective power to shift these systems? Every aspect of community, I think we have a boundary that we can penetrate in every aspect of community, in the economic community, in the education world, in the political world in the social activism world, and we have to use in the arts and cultural world. It's the responsibility of, for instance, the arts and cultural industry actually to speak truth to power. It always has in American culture. During the 1920s and early 30s, we had the Harlem Renaissance where uh, we had writers like the Langston Hughes and the Zora Neale Hurston's and the Oswald Tanners. And we had so many folks, Dorothy West, who wrote about the conditions of Black folks and also wrote about our not only the conditions, but our experience and our connectivity to our communities, to this nation, meaning America, and to the world. Had a, The Harlem Renaissance had a great impact. That was a cultural revolution. The same thing happened in the, the 60s with the Black Arts Movement, which was the time during the Civil Rights era. And I, now I think we need the same thing. We need a cultural revolution in America. We see what's happening with this coronavirus and the a completely inept underprepared and corrupt president who has blood on his hands, who is watching and letting families and people lose their lives. So there are many boundaries that we can penetrate this systemically. Houses, and we're talking about the physical structure of a house, has an impact on thriving communities because each house, a series of houses develop blocks. Blocks develop neighborhoods. Neighborhoods develop communities. So we have to assure that, first of all, that housing in Philadelphia particularly, but in this country in general and across the world, that everyone deserves and is to have a house, 
have four walls and a roof over their head. Yeah, an actual um, functioning bathroom. Yeah, and running water. These are some basic necessities. However, when you have communities that don't have proper educational institutions, that have lending practices from banks that are historically racist and discriminate against black folks and brown people, when you have um, political representation that is totally ineffective and doesn't show up until it's time for election, that don't fight on behalf of the people to make sure to solve the public education problem or to solve the redlining, because public education didn't just die last night. Public education has been dying for quite some time. And so we've seen this happen. I remember in 2000, I heard folks on political pundits say public education is going to be the civil rights movement of the 2000s. And we haven't addressed it as of yet, public education. Who is going to step up and say, okay, we're going to take the matter. We're going to actually address this issue of undereducation, of inequality or the inequity in public school funding. At what point are we going to look at our teachers and when we see a teacher tell them, thank you for our service, because they go into battle every day with children who come in, beautiful, brilliant children who come to school every day, which is a task because a lot of these children are with their parents are fighting poverty at an unknown level, at a level that many of us just take for granted. Trauma, uh, they're fighting this right? poverty. Poverty, trauma, toxic stress, right? Absolutely. In their homes. And we have, you know, sixth graders and fourth and fifth graders who are raising their children who are coming from foster care or who are coming from homes that are not necessarily abusive, but just are living in poverty where the mother and father have to work two and three jobs and still don't make enough to pay all the bills yeah. and to pay for child care. That's totally unacceptable. So we need some leadership that can step to the forefront and say this and then start to galvanize the resources in our communities because I say that we have the resources to build upon this and to build upon the strengths of the black woman who works two jobs and is raising her three or four children and, or the black man who's a single father and who's raising his two daughters and, and has to work two jobs and still three jobs because I feel like now three, three has become yes. common like one yes. a day one so, at night one over the weekends I've known yeah. so many people like it's outrageous it's totally unacceptable so we have to have folks that are going to stand up and say that's unacceptable and develop a strategy into finding out how we're going to solve this dilemma this problem we have and that's the root of not having thriving communities that's the root of stealing wealth from our communities because these people can't afford to own their own homes. Or if they can't afford, the banks won't give them a loan because credit score or whatever it may be, then white folks can come right in. You know, this guy's a roofer and, you know, he has a family, he's a nice white guy. And they can give him a loan and say, you know, we'll cut your break, we'll give us some extra paperwork or give us 5% more down. And they find a way to work it out. Thus, we have communities, we have uh, in Philadelphia and across this nation, we have white communities that are thriving with neighboring black communities that are underdeveloped and they have the same economic flow of, of income. We have black roofers and black construction workers and black teachers and black frontline workers in communities that aren't thriving. To me, there, there are many profound truths in your rant, right? But there is one that really stands out to me as close to my heart, which is why, like, I started this radio show and it's that 
we don't organize and we don't organize, I think, inside of two misperceptions. So, or one is a lived experience, which you just said, right? Like a person who's working three jobs and raising kids and kids who are trying to raise their siblings and are like submersed with toxic stress and trauma. Like it's really hard for folks like that to organize. Among, I think, progressive white folk in particular, like I'll speak for my own, there's a typical misperception that when we talk about systems, we like talk about everything we know, right? We know this and we know this and we know this and we read this book and then we read that book. And then what happens to the conversation is it dies and people like that sense of hopelessness becomes so overwhelming that we go, all right, now let's talk about chocolate cake. Like let's talk about anything <laughs> else. Mm -hmm except mm -hmm. this because the sense of hopelessness and I'm going to go to body for a second. This is why healing and activism are so important together. Our bodies get so overwhelmed by the sense of hopelessness that we just got to do something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that hopelessness and that misbelief that we don't have power gets in the way of us organizing in a way that we can have power and we can actually that we can leverage our power because we always had it. Because no politician can stand in the face of a whole country that turns against That's right. him or her. I'm not talking about any president in particular, right? But it's mm -hmm. like all of our systems stand on our shoulders as people who support that, whether implicitly or explicitly, right? And so there are ways to leverage our collective power to shift things. And that's what I hear like in your passion and in, also in, in part in your frustration, it's we can shift. And we can also shift Absolutely. our own mentality if we shift away from individualism and trying to prove ourselves as better than somebody else or whatever that is, right? We can organize in a way that our communities are stronger and then we're stronger together because systems do not get changed by individual people. Like, I'm going to say that to your face, right? Like, you're running. Mm -hmm. I think there, you know me enough to know that I'm, I'll be the person knocking on the door holding you accountable, mm -hmm. right? You know, I have a, an analogy that I use, a metaphor that I use that when you go to a vending machine and you put your dial 25 in the vending machine and you push A1, you want your Snickers to come out. If your Snickers doesn't come out, there are a few things that you do. And most folks in, that I know, the first thing they'll do is, okay, this big, this huge monstrosity of a machine is there. And what you put in, you didn't get out what you put your money in for. So you start to shake the machine. And if your Snickers doesn't drop, then you start to rock the top of that machine and mm. then it still doesn't drop. So you start to kick the bottom of the machine and it still doesn't drop. And then at that point you say, okay, well, if that's the case, I want my money back. And see, and I, I liken that to voting. When you cast your vote, we have to make sure that our vote or the person that we vote for actually delivers on what they say they're going to deliver. And if not, we have to shake it. We have to rock it from the top and bottom. We have to kick it. We have to upset it. And if not, we have to change the reality. So we have to say we want our money back or we want our investment back. Means that we have to take to the polls as a collective entity and change the reality. And so, because we are controllers of our own reality, we do live in neighborhoods. So we have the ability to do it. We've done it before. We've faced greater odds. That's right. Um, but it's only done through a collective power, you know, no pun intended. It's really done through folks coming together, actually understanding how systems impact our communities and then how we can impact those systems. 
I'll give you a classic example of right now, we started the Black Writers Museum in a small 2200 square boutique storefront. We've since moved it into an historic property in the middle of Vernon Park that was built in the 1700s. Vernon Park was a park that I grew up in back in the day. It was a very, very active park. Over the years, the park has become destitute and it was known for this drug activity and illegal activity and shootings and just, you know, people shooting up. I talked to some elected officials and said, listen, let me use the building in the middle of the park that has been underdeveloped. And I actually, um, for over 50 years, this building has been underdeveloped. We watched this historic property, this national historic landmark, just go to waste. And I said, I will turn the park around. And when I said I, I meant the collective I. I didn't mean me because I can't do it alone. And they said, okay, come on, let's see you do it. And I walked in the park and I started talking to folks and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to open the Black Riders Museum here. This is what I've had here. We, I partnered with this councilwoman, Cindy Bass, and we started oldies in the park. She started oldies in the park and I was the host of that. We started giving activities in the park. They started to see students come into the Black Writers Museum, into the Vernon House. I had the city invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in redeveloping this home. The city since has redeveloped the park and put over $1.2 million into the refurbishing of the park, of the landscape, of the public and green space. And now we had a park now that once where you would find folks that were ODing off of dope and heroin, now we find kids playing. You can hear the birds chirping, the children playing, and folks who sit back up against the trees and read books. And this was a, a collaboration between me, the community, Friends of Vernon Park, the historic Germantown residents, the city of Philadelphia, corporations that I took to task that said, in order to pay for these festivals that we want to give every year, because I give a People's Poetry and Jazz Festival every year, we said, in order to do that, we need you to reinvest in this community. So we need you to write a check. We had one company that wrote us, I'm not even going to talk about the name of the company, that wrote us a $1,000 check. I said, no, thank you, because you make billions of dollars off of our community. You're not going to write me a measly $1,000 check. They came back with a $5,000 check. I sent them a thank you note. Thank you very much, because we have to invest in our communities. And we need that kind of push. But we only could do this because of the collective work of systems. And I'm talking about community systems now. The Friends of Vernon Park with our councilwoman, with our state representative, Stephen Kinsey at the time. So we only did this by utilizing the ability to come together and make something happen as a unit. And I think we still have that. We still have young folks who want to do in their community. We still have uh, parents who want to see their community thrive. We still want a thriving business district. When I grew up, we could actually do all of our shopping at Germantown and Shelton. We could do our shopping. We could do our eating. They had restaurants. They had hotels. They had everything. And now if you can get a pair of sneakers at Germantown and Shelton and mobile phone, and that's about it as far as I'm concerned. And so families and our homes and our communities have been traumatized because of undereducation, because of poverty, because of systemic abuse then it's hard for our communities to kind of get up off the mat and pull itself together. Well, what I'm saying to you today is that this is getting of a continuous rather of a process that's going to pull the resources. We put together a, a diverse uh, group of community leaders and community activists to make some things happen in our communities. We have certain folks that are used to doing maintenance. When you, you talked about like the middle-class white progressive and liberals, 
oftentimes they're used to doing maintenance work because it's really, really difficult to get into the real work, to really address the trauma. Uh, because what it does is it actually, it pulls on their privilege, you know? And if you can't opt out of your privilege, then you really don't want change. People kind of like us, they're working against their own self-interest to some degree to say that, okay, we really want to even the playing field. That's right. So it's a lot of work that we have to do in our community, but it's not a task that is um, for the meek. It's a task for those of us who are prepared. I'm confident that we are prepared to take on that task through a process of collective power. Thank you. And thank you for your call to acting from the common good instead of the individual interest. Right. So yes. that's the shift of our thinking. It's like, how, how do we see our common good as also our good? Yes. As opposed to my individual interest and in as much as I can get out in my own pocket being my interest. And I think yeah. the fascinating yeah. thing about COVID-19 is I think in the United States and maybe elsewhere, I think it's bringing up a lot of questions about the common good because we're starting to see how we're all connected. Yes. And I'm not surprised that New Zealand is like one of the countries that like beat it fastest. Because I remember going to New Zealand a few years ago and just one of my colleagues out of nowhere, I don't remember the context. I probably said something. I probably said something uh, that that didn't quite uh, make sense. And she just said to me, you Americans, like, when will you ever get that the common good serves everyone? Like, do you have no sense of the common good? And I'm sitting here going like, yep, pretty much. I mean, capitalism has eroded that to a great extent. And it's kind of the conversation mm -hmm. we were having before. So we're starting to wind down. Do you have any kind of final thoughts? Of course, I want to thank you for inviting me on your show. I always enjoy um, the conversation about how we can do better for um, our community. I mean, the community as a whole, community in general, and how we can continue to talk this through and, and to speak about and bring about the issues and also to invoke the power and the energy in not only just ourselves, but others, so we can come together. Um, what I'd like to leave you with is, is that you started off talking about systems. You know, we talked specifically about um, some housing issues, but particularly how systems work. Uh, we have to continue to critically look at how systems adversely impact or impact our communities, how historical institutions and systems impact our communities, and how we have the responsibility and duty to change that reality. I grew up in a family and a community that says that, you know, your reality is the reality that you create and that you make. And everybody is not where you are. So one, be in a better position to make some things happen. And if you are, then that is your responsibility and that is your duty. And everybody is only required to give what they can give. Because there will be a time where you can give 110% and someone only can get 50%. But there will also be a time when you can only give 50 and that person and another person give 110. And what we have to do is through the power of love, and I don't mean this in some abstract concept, through the power of love, loving each other, love one another as a family, I think collectively we can make a difference in our communities and we can impact public education. We can impact economic disparities and not only reduce but eliminate poverty. These positions that we want to reduce poverty, I want to eliminate poverty. 
people say, well, that's not real. You're a surrealist. I'm like, well, why isn't it real? Because we're not, we're saying it's not real. That's right. Um, there can be equitable funding for public schools. There's um, enough money in this country for every single human being to thrive. Yeah, and we know that. We have to oust the corruption. And, and I don't think poverty is everywhere. You know, if we talk about gun control and gun violence or, or the minimum wage. All of that is everywhere. So I think that a stance of collectivity and collective work and responsibility that we can address and overcome a lot of the detrimental systems that impact our communities. And I look forward to continuing to work with you, Dr. Rita, and the other leaders in our community so we can make some things happen positively for our communities. How do people get in touch with you, Supreme? They can always call, um, for our campaign, they can call 215-346-5959, 215-346-5959, or go to www.votesupremedow.com, www.votesupremedow.com, or they can always call my home number, which is 215-849-6917. Supreme, this has been like a great, great honor. Thank you for Thank you. taking us kind of by the hand on the journey of like, as life, art, as collective voice, right? Um, and kind of taking us on this journey from the Harlem Renaissance and the Harlem Renaissance is the 20s and we kind of started there, but we know that there is a Black radical tradition of art and side by side with movement building and activism that, you know, goes back to forever. Yes. And um, thank you for taking us on that journey and reminding us that like the art we consume also helps shape our mind and our world. Yeah. And that yes. uh, we do have the power collectively to shift our systems. And thank you for the work that you've done in terms of pooling resources in Germantown for the museum and for the park. It was really enlightening to talk with you and just really honor who you are in our community. And, uh, and good luck with your run. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic. <laughs>